being completely frank, like, I'm just going to be honest, halfway through January, I'd made like 80 grand off it. And I was literally sitting there. I was like, now that this happened. <laughs> Now, before we get into this episode with Grace, I'm going to need you to subscribe if you're not subscribed already, as we have some incredible episodes on the way, just as juicy as this one. Welcome to the Court Off Guard podcast, the podcast where no topic is off limits. My name is Patricia Bright. I'm a content creator on YouTube, a self-proclaimed entrepreneur and founder of The Break Platform. On this podcast, we're going to have some amazing and successful guests who are all trailblazers in their own individual field. From models to business owners to founders, experts and influencers like myself, I'm going to find out what it's like to be there, what makes them tick, laugh and how they got to where they are and I'm even going to be brave enough to ask them what's in their wallet. As they say, honesty is the best policy and hopefully you're about to be caught off guard. In this week's episode, we're joined by influencer and entrepreneur Grace Beverly, who started a multi-million pound business using social media all while still at uni. This episode is all about social media and productivity, from how you build an audience to how you monetize this. We're talking actual numbers and how you can also build a brand with a point of difference. Grace spills all the tea on her journey from pushing through imposter syndrome and we'll discuss why sometimes you just have to do things and stop overthinking. I'm an influencer, I've been in this industry, so it's great to sit down with someone who's in this space and so successful. We get some of Grace's incredible productivity hacks to help you become more productive and do what you want to do. I love this conversation, particularly because Grace is so open when it comes to talking about money. She's a girl after my own heart, and we're going to get into all of that. So if you do like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more people find us. So let's get into it. Hey guys, everyone, welcome. You're here listening to the Court Off Guard podcast. I'm your host, Patricia, and I am beyond excited today because we have got the one and only Grace Beverly here for an episode. Hello, Grace. Hi, thanks for having me. It is so good to see you on here. It's been a while. This has been like a work in progress, but Grace is booked and busy. We haven't had the chance to like to connect, but I feel like it's so nice because I feel like you're the first social media influencer. And I say that in quotation marks, like it's a bad thing, but it's been an absolutely amazing thing for the both of us. A hundred percent. I'd love to explore that journey with you a little bit more as well as so many other things. So I'm going to do a little bit of a heads up for those of you who don't know about Grace. Grace has got an amazing background, an amazing story, like 23 years old and has done just so many amazing things off of the back of social media, but of course, hard work. I'm going to read off some of your accolades right now. Grace is an entrepreneur, social media influencer, and the author of the soon-to-be-released Working Hard, Hardly Working, Redefining Productivity in the Modern World. That sounds like a book that I'm going to love because I'm obsessed with productivity. That makes you so happy. She's the founder of three businesses. Tala, a sustainable and ethical activewear brand. 
Shreddy, a goal-setting app that became the number one fitness app, and BND, a company which sells resistant bands and other workout products. They are hugely successful, and she ended the year with a combined sales of 7.3 million across all of her three companies. And these are brands that she started whilst being a student at university at Oxford. And she's used social media to build an audience and beyond. So, hello, Grace. It is so amazing to have you on here. It's so nice to be here. I'm really excited. I feel like we've we've both come so far since last time we did something exactly. together as well. Yeah. And I love that. I live for that. It's so crazy. Me and Grace, we kind of know each other, but I feel like the YouTube world, especially in the UK, we kind of like DM each other, we will follow each other. And Grace, you know, has been working on so many fitness projects. And I've seen her years ago when you were still at university. So you were combining being a I don't even know if I want to say you started off as being a social media influencer. You were just someone who was creating content around fitness because that was something you were interested in. Definitely. I think that it was definitely something I fell into. It was definitely a kind of, I didn't even know what influencers were when I started because it was like five years ago. And I feel like the only people who were influencers were like actresses and models and all of that. And I didn't watch YouTube. I had no idea about any of it and sure I think it was definitely something I fell into which has suited me so well because it's meant that I've been able to mold it to exactly how I want it to be including now when I don't act as a social media influencer at all it's kind of like hi again sorry <laughs> like we have this first section here which is called an ice shaker really quick off the cuff questions that are meant to make you feel not awkward but you know you have to think a little bit about them and maybe you might not have been asked these questions before we just want to rattle you just a little bit. So would you ever delete your Grace Beverly social media account or have you ever thought about doing that? I would definitely never say never when it comes to that. I think that I've scaled down so much even over the kind of the past year that it's just, yeah, it's not a central part of my life. And I feel like I don't really, yeah, I don't use social media that much or I kind of use it as anyone would use it. So yeah, I definitely consider it. Do you think people need a social media account to succeed? And do you think it's possible to achieve what you've achieved without social media? I feel like there's a huge acceleration factor with social media. I mean, it's a form of marketing. So in the same way as if you were like insane at ads or whatever it might be, it's an acceleration. And it's obviously hugely done so much for me. But that being said, now that I've spent a lot of time learning kind of the back end of everything... I mean, people people do incredible things the whole time with only using kind of paid spend on social media or influence marketing that's nothing to do with themselves. And I feel like now I know that. I mean, if I started up another business now, I'd do it in a completely different way because I wouldn't do it off the back of my own influence. It's so possible and people do it the whole time. But there was a huge acceleration factor in the in the way that, you know, I was able to have that audience there, even if they weren't necessarily converted to being customers, there's that kind of hype around it. The algorithm works in your favor. There are various different things that are definitely going to push you out there. So, I mean, there's a reason why it's a great idea to start a business as an influencer. For sure. What's the biggest misconception you think people have about you? I think the more I've like moved away from posting on social media, I think the more people think that I've got, I don't know, Maybe it could come across this way because I'm not like sharing vulnerabilities and stuff. But I did a post the other day where I was kind of like, there is a huge correlation between women being more successful and being asked to be more vulnerable and then being asked to show their emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's because of this kind of lack of this kind of negative correlation between 
being successful and being likable as a woman and it's like you have to have like a story behind you that makes you really humble or that makes you like oh no like downplay my success like all of this and so I think the more that I like don't show that the more people are like oh she must be sitting there like Mm. <laughs> like, like I am amazing like I do this like and, and I'm obviously I'll still be the exact same person behind the scenes like I'm still you know I've still got my insecurities I've still got my vulnerabilities yeah. but I, I don't share them anymore and therefore or sometimes I do but like m- because I don't use social media like that it's not yes. my first thought I'll only share when I'm in the mood to share and so I think that one of the misconceptions that's come out of that is that I mean, I think change is a good thing. I think saying people have changed is a bad thing. It's a very immature mindset. That's But that's another question for another time. Um, but I actually do think that people probably think that I've changed way more than I actually have just because I'm not sharing the same vulnerabilities that I would when I was on YouTube or whatever it might be. And people love to see successful women as either a bitch or like and very like or the other side of it which is like oh but she's got this sob story behind her and then there's this and then there's that and she's really humble and she plays it down it's like women should just be able to be successful without having to reassure people like oh no I'm still human my success really isn't that great and like all of that and so I feel like it's definitely I think the more unapologetic I've been about that the more people have been like oh God, she she seems more horrible than she used to be. And it's like, well... Yeah, so they've categorised you in the bitch category, basically. But what you're trying to say is that you're not. Essentially, yeah. I think when we look at the way we see women in a successful woman, we kind of... I have to address that with myself too. There are so many people who I see as successful and I'm like, oh, but apparently they're like quite hard to work with. And apparently like, you know, they're really, really hard cutting. You would never say that about a successful man. You just say like, oh, he knows what he's doing or he's like, whatever. And so it's like, I feel like I've had to address my own preconceptions with that too. And I definitely see that applied to me from other people. Oh my gosh, we're loving it. We're going to talk about this in detail, but this is still the eye shaker. (laughs) What was it actually like going to Oxford University? And what are some of the things that no one prepares you for? It was daunting. And I think no one prepares you for things like the imposter syndrome. I think everyone who's there doesn't think they deserve to be there because they think there's like some ultra high genius that they're not, that everyone should be. And it's the first time you're thrown in the deep end as an adult being like, make new friends, then decide to live with them within two weeks for next year. Otherwise, all the leases are gone. So there are challenges. But I loved it. I loved it. And I wouldn't have changed it for the world. What are your thoughts on cancel or call out culture on social media? And have you experienced it yourself? I think that's a real importance for accountability. I think that some areas of cancel culture need to be worked on because they don't allow anyone including like me I found before you hear something you take it at face value you don't look into it you cancel whoever it is or whatever brand it is or whatever and it's it's really hard to get around yeah. and I think that I've definitely now that I'm seen as more like a brand and like all of these things I very much try to avoid doing that to other brands because like as in it's kind of like you don't necessarily know apart from I think there's a very clear line when it comes to racism, homophobia, sexism, like basically just there are some clear lines. And then there are some things that I think people love mob movement and they love a kind of everyone in. I've got the facts and all of that. I mean, I talked about it. Yeah, I've I've talked about it before, but never in kind of I think there are some things that definitely need to be cancelled. And I think that need to be kind of held up but I think there's a way we need to address taking things at face value and there have been a few times where I've kind of started a conversation on my story being like so this happened this week controversially what do you think about like if you think about it like this and people have been like 
oh, I never thought about it that way. And it's like, that's the danger because I wouldn't either until I really sat there and was like, huh, let me look into this more or let me consider this. I've also noticed with cancel culture is that it doesn't stick. I've actually seen certain people or certain things be cancelled and they blow up even more afterwards. So I feel like actually cancelling can be a strategy that some people use for growth. Some people certainly use it as a... I I think less so people than brands. I think certain brands definitely use it as a all publicity is good publicity thing. Whereas people, you can use that, but it's going to, unless you're some like superhuman, it's going to be detrimental to your mental health. And so it's like, is that really a cost you want to pay? For me, I'd rather have no followers and no one yelling at me. (laughs) But like, (laughs) no, that's not completely true. Okay, well, I feel like we've shaken the ice just a little bit there. I think that what people would really want to know about maybe the business side of how you started off as an influencer and how did you monetize in the beginning before you even really knew about what the options were? When I say I like fell into it, like we'll move past the like initial how it it grew essentially just because I was sharing content that I wanted to share. And then it wasn't just like, oh, and then people would kind of come flooding in. It was more then I would take learnings from that. So I look at it and say, okay, people like this more, they like this less or whatever. And then I just replicate that. And essentially, you know, that's how it grows. And then you change with the trends, you follow it along. And there is that's great. Like that's a great thing to do. So I worked at IBM for a year before I went to uni just to earn some money, get some corporate experience. When I was there, I basically, I was putting loads of recipes up on Instagram and they were essentially, I love eating shit, <laughs> but I w- was trying to be like fitness. Essentially, I'd make healthy versions of unhealthy recipes. And then people loved them so much and people were asking me to share them the whole time. And I was like, uh, which I would love doing. And then after a bit, I was like, I have a full-time job. Like I'm, you know, I'm leaving the office super late. I'm I'm leaving my house at 5, 6 a.m. <laughs> like something's going to have to give here. And so basically what I decided to do was I literally threw together. I talked about this the other day on my Instagram story. I contacted my graphic designer student friend and I was like, hey, would you be able to mock something up for me? Basically, the idea is that I want to put all my recipes that I put. I want to have a sweet ebook and a savory ebook and I want to call it like eat my Instagram and I just want to have the recipe stuff. And so basically collated it all together, literally did it within like less than a week. And the longest part was just the graphic design stuff. She was just like a student friend of mine. And we were like, great. We just sat around. I like got her dinner every night and paid her a bit of money. And then, you know, we made this, sold it. And it kind of made a few hundred pounds. I was was like, great. That's a fantastic amount of extra pocket money for me. And then I think a year later, I didn't do that. I didn't like push it at all. I was more like, if I'm going to be putting this together, I do need some sort of like remuneration for it. I'd kind of like forgotten I'd even released those. And then it came to Black Friday and I was like, I should do a Black Friday sale on them. And I remember, like, I just, like, built the Shopify site. It was all very simple and just, like, shoved nice colours on it and was like, yay. So I put a sale on for that Black Friday weekend. And I remember, just because I'd said it was a sale, I remember making, like three, four grand on it. And I was like... And that was off the back of not knowing, just a plan, doing something just valuable for people. Yeah. yeah that's so amazing. Exactly. And, and valuable for me as well. And existing content too. I didn't retake any photos. I literally didn't have the time. And then about a month later, I was I had a problem with student finance. And I was, I was just getting tuition fees. I was paying for my maintenance off the back of what I'd earned working at IBM. And then obviously extra stuff here and there. Like at the time, I was only getting paid 50 quid for a post or like something. It was when you were really having to convince brands to even send you anything. Then I was meant to be getting my tuition fees from 
student finance and there was a problem with it so I was in it was in my Christmas holidays after my first term at Oxford obviously like really trying to work really hard prove that you know <laughs> I'm good like all of that and then I got an email being like you officially are on like the suspension notice for Oxford University because you haven't paid your tuition fees and I was like oh my god so I sent like a like frantic emails to like the bursa to like all of these people and I was like I don't know what's happened I've signed up to student finance like I wasn't going to pay it myself and they're like okay that's good to know well now we we know that you know we can we can keep an eye on it a bit more and they, they were like I was in a really nice college they were lovely this year for example with all the covid stuff and all the awful things about the results and the state school results they basically just said like look if you've been disadvantaged by this we're letting you in anyway whether it's this year or next year they're a great college and they were like it's fine but you really do need to pay them and I was like okay well like I'll call student finance because I I've not got nine grand lying around and my parents don't pay for uni and so I was like freaked out and I remember it's obviously so fortunate that that happened because I literally thought I was out to dinner with some Instagrammy people and I was like I've always thought that I wouldn't sell like a fitness ebook for a while and I was like I'm just gonna have to do it and I went home that evening and wrote it until like 5am and then called up my graphic designer friend again and was like we're, we're moving once more let's do this and then then put that up for sale just after Christmas with like the January hype and basically said I'd only put it on for sale for a few days even though it was an ebook and I sold a thousand of them or something and so like that was like 3.5 grand or something like it was a significant I was like holy fuck and so I was like okay this is not all the way there but I'm just going to keep pushing that all of that and then I started like marketing it properly I talked to like some people who I knew who had experience with these things and like was just using testimonials all of these things and I remember being completely frank like I'm just going to be honest halfway through January I'd made like 80 grand off it it was unbelievable and I was literally sitting there I was like how, what what do I do with all this money and how did this happen <laughs> what sorry I didn't when I said that I sold a thousand they were 30 I literally just realized my math <laughs> I didn't make 3.5 grand that's what I made in Black Friday it was like 35 grand okay. at that point wow. I honestly have never seen that money never thought I would of like course. see that money just like sitting there yeah and I was like what the fuck and then basically then student finance came through a few days before I was even like is it wise because I've always been of the opinion that you're meant to get a student loan anyway because it's basically free money and then yeah. you only ever pay it back in essentially like as your you know for a certain amount of years and only after a certain amount of time so I was like okay great like you know fine and so that went in and then I, I just like <laughs> had this money that I wouldn't have started if not and basically just decided to look at other avenues look at what I could do with it set up an Instagram page for that specific product took people on board and basically just started being like right I guess this is what I do then and then and then people loved it so when that eight weeks was up I wrote another one like just various different things paid paid like experts to be able to approve things like all of I just wanted to make it really good and I wanted to make it a good product and I think that we all have this sort of mindset where it's oh my god that money I'm like people have paid me this like this has to be the best it could ever be and like I need to reply to everything I need to do this I need to do that and I was like stressed out my mind because then I also you know was going back to exams fast forward I decided to do physical products in November of 2017 of that same year where you had the accidental... So that, well, it was technically the next year. So that was December. And then around in November, I was like talking to manufacturing partners. And I remember I was using resistance bands at the time, these fabric resistance bands, 
But I never knew about them until my PT friend had been like, oh, you've got to use these. Bodybuilders use them the whole time to grow their glutes. And I was like, huh, like, how have I never heard of these? I've only heard of like the shitty rubber ones. And then started using them. I was like, I was like this is amazing. And then I looked online, they were like 40 pounds. And I was like, that's a lot. Like, as in, that's a lot. So we started looking at manufacturing of it. Turns out that was just the going rate. And so they'd been hugely inflated because they were such a specialist product for a specialist mm-hmm. niche market. Yeah. And I was like, fuck that. Like, girls want to grow their bums. So like... Yeah. I'm going to make them <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to sell them for 14 pounds and I'm going to write a free booty guide to go with them. God. And so yeah. that basically, and that was so feasible. I mean, it wasn't a margin. If I was doing it now, I would have made the margins higher because you understand that obviously what comes into that margin, it's not just profit, it's marketing, it's staff, it's office, it's all of those things. It's everything else. Of course. Yeah. But like that made sense to me at the time. I had very few like sunk costs, very few like marginal costs, even apart from the actual like CPU of the product. And so I was just, I was like, great, cool, let's do it. Put 200 of them or something up for sale. They sold within like milliseconds to the point that the website glitched and we sold like 10 times the amount that we had. We had to call the factory, get them to work and like overdrive, ship them all over and fulfill the rest as pre-orders. And then kind of like the rest has been history. In summary, what you've just said to me is that out of need because you needed to pay your student finance because the loan hadn't dropped and hit the account as expected, you realised that you had an opportunity. Actually, I don't even know if you realised you had an opportunity. You were just, you just had necessity. You accidentally dropped on an 80 grand deal or an 80 grand situation. You put something together. You didn't even overthink the process. You just had need. And then that was the result of it. And I think you've been able to build off the back of that. And I think there are so many people in similar situations that they have needs and that, you know, they might, it might be a bill to pay. It might be a school fee to pay or something like that. And they just need to kind of almost be, this is the definition of being entrepreneurial. It's like, what can I do? What can I scrub together and then take action and do? A hundred percent. And I wouldn't give myself as much credit as saying like some of them were conscious. Like it was more just like, I could do this. I could do this. I've sold so much shit. I realized how much shit I've sold that like has never made it to like the now version of the brands. And it's not as in, I don't mean it's like shit that was sold, but it's kind of like avenues that I haven't then taken or like whatever. And it's just about being like, I could do this. I could do this and finding out what works for me. For me, it was great to have the time that I was at uni where I didn't need to like take a leap, quit a job, like make a decision. It was more about finding those avenues and then creating this concept that I actually want to do to do essentially like a full-blown brand love it but the thing is you were doing it while being at uni you were multitasking and doing what you had to do while doing something else you had responsibilities and I think there's this idea that people are like I've got to quit my job or I've got to stop doing what I'm doing or I've got to drop out of university but I think it's really important for people to understand that not everybody has the luxury to do that necessarily and that you can kind of they call it bootstrapping you bootstrapped you came up with an idea, you did it on the fly and it paid off. It doesn't always pay off, but in your situation, it did. Now, how did you balance being at uni as well as building all these brands? Small plug. I talk about this a lot in my book, but essentially I'm very on it in terms of the way I plan things and the way I deal with everything. And like, you're a spreadsheet ho. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like a everything like I have like like a methodology for like everything I do and it's just it's like a language to me um but for me it was all like at school for example like I always because I did music like it was always like you know I'd come in at seven and then school would start at like nine or whatever it would be like I'd always have things around that and like Mm -hmm. I think actually going to a uni where I had so much work was really helpful because if I went somewhere where I had an essay a term rather than one every two days then like 
I think it would have been a lot harder to make that kind of schedule. Whereas I worked it as a job anyway. I'd just come from a job, like I'd just come from my internship. And mm-hmm. so I kind of arrived and I was like, this is the way I do things. I'm just going to work it as a job. I'll be in the library and working hours and I'll make it happen. And then obviously you can fit everything else into that. Whereas if I was waking up at 11 every day and doing like the very studenty lifestyle, which like in part, yeah, at some point that would have been great. <laughs> I'm sure I would have loved that. But for me, I didn't even have that opportunity whether I was doing the business or not. So I think actually it really helped me that I was in a high pressure, like high moving environment because you know, there wasn't as much of that. I'm missing out. I'm doing this. I'm doing like whatever. It was very just like, well, you're going to be working hard anyway. So you might as well be making some money um, and fitting other things in there as well. So I love this. I actually think like hard work makes people better. And I feel like from my personal experience, like one of my hardest jobs was when I worked as a consultant for Deloitte, right? And the ish that they made us do, how hard we had to work. We were in at seven, we'd be eating dinner at the table. We'll be seeing client you'd give a director a deck at 7 p.m. and they'd like scrub it out and say it's not good enough and then you'd go back and you'll work till 9 p.m. It kind of, I feel like I learned the most because I was in that environment that pushed me to work really hard and I'm presuming that at university, like the uni you were at made you learn how to like just do what you had to do because I think no one can get anywhere without hard work. If you think it's just because you're lying back, you know, you're at home taking a cute Instagram you know, picture, looking relaxed, but I know behind the scenes, it's a bit more than that. Yeah. So how do you plan your day? Because, and actually, obviously you're doing a book around productivity. So share a little bit more about your perspective on that. I essentially make myself a routine no matter what I'm doing based on a number of kind of like habit you know, so that no matter how much my days are changing around, I'm able to like know how I deal with things. So At the moment, for example, my diary is absolutely madness because I'm still finishing the manuscript to the book. So I, on Mondays and Fridays, I work the equivalent to a whole work week combined for the businesses through that, plus about two to three hours on the end of every work day for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And that adds up to a kind of like a 40 hour week just from from those. And then on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the day, I'm writing. And that is time blocked out. And I time block everything. Everything. Oh my gosh, she's speaking my language. Oh, I'm getting excited. Time block everything. Yes, I love it. And I think that that's especially important and was especially important for me when I was like, doing uni, which is, was, you know, it was very academic. All of the stuff I was doing was kind of essay-based and research-based. And then the doing the business and the creative stuff, you're in a completely different mindset. So there's no point you doing one thing, then the other thing, then the other thing put yourself like batch your tasks together and how you're going to do them for that, like how your mindset is for each one of them and make that happen. And things like I have really strict rules. Like I like back when now, obviously I have an amazing team to enable me to do all the rest of the stuff I'm doing, which essentially means that I don't go on my emails. I get one approval or one or two approval emails a day to go through everything. But at the time, for example, I'd only um, check my emails like at set points during the day, dependent on what it was. Were you disciplined enough to do it? Yeah, yeah. like, because otherwise you just don't get your work done. And like, you'll think you're ticking boxes, but actually you're procrastinating by doing admin. Like you're not, you're not actually making progress. And so for me, even if it was like at IBM, for example, like you'd have the instant messaging that the service that they had, but then emails, I'd check them maximum once an hour. And that was because I was an intern. So I had to be on, like, as in I had to be on my emails. That was a huge part of my job. I couldn't just be like, sorry, sir. Like 
I'm only checking them two times a day. Like, <laughs> sorry, someone does that for me. Um, no, that wouldn't have gone that well. But for example, even in the like in the uni day, like there, it would be maximum twice, and then I'd work around that because otherwise you use it as a real form of procrastination. And it's the same with it, it's the same with like any communication, phones, anything. My ethos is if you're working, you might as well be working. Otherwise, you could be doing something else. Ooh, no, but this is so true. There's a book called Make Time and these guys, um, they worked at Google and they actually were part of making email and also like bouncing emails or whatever, stuff like this. And they literally talk about the fact that these systems are put in place to distract you. They actually want you to be on platforms as long as possible. That's how they make their money, right? You know how they say that if you're, if anything's free, then you're the product. So essentially... For example, like any social media, if you're not paying for it, you are paying for it somehow. Otherwise, there'll be no means for you to use it. So you're paying for it with your time and therefore with the eyes you're putting on ads, therefore with the amount of like traffic you're giving them, whatever it might be. Yeah. These are designed to distract you. And there was a really interesting, I don't know if you've read Trick Mirror. It's by someone called just Gia Tolentino. And she's like unbelievable, like the smartest essays on like modern time that I've like just unbelievable and there was this one like passage where she essentially talks about us on social media we do the same thing as you know the lab rat experiment where like there is you know where there's like water and if it comes out at like regular times then they they like don't tap it they don't go on it they you know they go to like do whatever they're doing regularly and if it comes out at like random times they're constantly like tapping the water thing like trying to get it out and that that's like us with social media like we're scrolling we're not getting any joy out of it and then there'll be suddenly just for the like an inkling that someone will give us that like oh ha ha or like oh yeah that's motivated me or whatever it might be it's like we're constantly we have that like lab rat behavior we're like constantly just trying to get that stimulated like whatever it might be and then as soon as I kind of just like thought about it more, like, don't get me wrong. I'm like, my screen time is embarrassing still. Like that was all like various different things. But when I'm working, I'm working and like, I'm going to do good work. Otherwise I might as well be with my friends or like doing something I love elsewhere. There's also the new movie that came out on Netflix. It's called The Social Media Dilemma. So they talk about this. But I think learning to balance and work really hard and then also play really hard and then prioritize other things is really important and that's the way you've got to potentially where you are right now but I feel like you know this very early because I don't think this is common for uh, do you come under millennial or do you come under gen z I'm actually gen z which gives me some great advantages in terms of being like because none of gen z is in the workforce so I feel like that's why we don't relate to gen z in terms of their working habits because they're not here yet so we have no developed like ideas of how gen z works but so when people say like oh you're so like different for gen z and I'm like no I'm just old for gen z you're, you're so, just like, on the cusp like, <laughs> you're on the cusp of I'm gen z just on the cusp so like I've been working for five years but like also the majority of gen z haven't they might have just come out of uni or whatever it might be but I think and I want to speak to all the gen z's and even the millennials that you know Things don't just happen. Like work has to be done, effort has to be put into it and a plan has to be made to be able to get to where you want to get to. So let's talk a little bit about your brand and maybe get some more insight into kind of how that worked. So you accidentally stumbled onto £80,000 and you're like, ding dong, this is an idea. This is something I can do. How did you then graduate that further and take it to the let's just say seven million pounds, seven million dollars based business because you've got multiple. Let's see that trajectory. 
one of the main things I had to my advantage, I'd say probably even more so than things like social media, was the fact that I had time and the fact that I had essentially three years of buffer where I could discover that this was what I was doing and this is what I wanted to do. And first of all, stumbling across that much money or making that much money happen from the off is unheard of and like I don't want people to think that like oh I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna make this it's it's not about that all the time but that was I said I'm not not also not gonna lie and say like oh yeah and then like it graduated like as in this is what happened so that was still a year and a half since I even released my first product but like it wasn't overnight but that specific one was um and that's often how it happens for people so for me, over the time where I was at uni, that business was very much a merch-based business. So just to explain a bit, for Shreddy, Shreddy owns BND, and you'll see soon, essentially, how it all works. So there's Shreddy and there's Tala. And what has become Shreddy now was what initially started off with kind of ebooks, resistance bands, all of this. If I started them now, it would be so different from how they developed. And that is why I think time has played such an important role for me, because I've essentially allowed myself to have like a three-year probation period of growing the business where I was learning, I was reading, I was understanding how these businesses work. Whereas usually you kind of need to know at least a significant amount or like at least the basics before you do that. And I think to be able to have that time and patience and the backing of that, you know, money from the initial amount I made to be able to do that, that was a huge amount for me. So for example, if I started a business now, I would set up the concept, the branding, the teams specifically for how it was going to work, like the SOPs, the guidelines, like everything would be set up and then and we'd launch. So essentially, the way I started it then was very different from how I'd start it now and actually how I started Tala. So Tala is the business I started a year and a half ago, and it's essentially a sustainable style brand. So that's what we call ourselves. We started off as exclusively activewear, so making activewear out of recycled and upcycled materials. So things like waste materials from factories that would be upcycled or plastic bottles, recycled cotton and whatever it would be. So how did you start that? You realised there was a gap in the market and then how? So I realised there was a gap in the market because I was working with, you know, general activewear brands and I was learning more and more about fast fashion and essentially the horrors of it. But it was also a huge amount of my income. I'm not going to lie. When I stopped promoting fast fashion and I stopped doing affiliate links and stuff based on that, I like 50% of my income, like easily, like completely out the window. And before even I did that, I was kind of looking around and I was being like, I don't feel comfortable anymore saying yes to working with certain brands that aren't sustainable or ethical then I was looking at the sustainable ones and I was like okay well you're 100 pounds for a pair of leggings so for my student audience how on earth am I going to say like you're shit you should be sustainable and then be like (laughs) like this is your only option yeah and so essentially I didn't even know if I was going to start it um and we just started looking at manufacturing opportunities talking to various manufacturing partners and saying you know like what is the reason that it's so expensive and essentially we worked out that there's a huge discrepancy in the cost of the product between having something 100% recycled or upcycled and having something like 92%. Okay. And it cuts the it cuts the cost price about in half. Right. Um and so if it costs cuts the cost price in half, then we can make a retail price something that can match these other big players in the active wear game. And and then we were looking at people and we were like, but not everything's 100% upcycled, so why are other people doing it? And it's essentially because sustainability has now come with an acceptable price tag. And yes, things should be more expensive. And, you know, we should be paying for ethical labor and we should be like all of these things. 
But because as soon as something is upcycled it was, or recycled, it is then enabled to be at that price point, we were like, ah, so half of it is because of the CPU and, the, sorry, cost per unit of the product. Yeah. And half of it is because then that's what sustainability pay, like pays. It's a premium. Yeah. And so after looking at that for a bit, we essentially worked out that we could do it after literally, I think, like six, seven months, we worked out how we could do it. And before that point, I'd kind of conceptualised the branding, what I'd want it to be like. I set aside these core pillars so that we'd always be inclusive, we'd always be ethical, we'd always be, you know, like all of these, like affordable or accessible, like various different things. And these were kind of like the pillars of not going to compromise for the brand. And then got round to essentially just kept pushing back the launch date for a long time until it was about a year after the initial conception of it just mm-hmm. because we weren't ready there were manufacturing problems like we essentially were entirely unprepared for the business not through any fault of our own but more because it's such a like it's such a different business and I think I thought based off my other experience it would be kind of related in some ways and no so then we launched a year and a half ago and it has been such a huge journey since then but we did six million in our first year, which was huge. Huge. And also especially for a sustainable business to be able to break into the market in that way. And essentially what I've come to realize through looking at like our PLs and profit and loss sheets and like looking at the way that things have gone, I've just realized that essentially we've been a hugely disruptive brand. So we've come into the marketplace with a similar offering to some people marrying a similar offering to another so for example the price point of ours is the same as the big players in the sportswear market that aren't kind of up lululemon way but are you know with the offering of the sustainable brands and then essentially we married them together and that is how you create a disruptive product and that is like there's this thing called the s curve which is essentially where disruption comes into a market that we like without even knowing in some ways we were like we want to do this so let's do this and that's been such a huge advantage for us and Tala was definitely started in terms of like I had a I had a team on it before we'd even launched we were very clear on like the guidelines the conceptualization like the Instagram the basically every area of it that I had kind of learned along the way with Shreddy I made happen with Tala and so that was a lot more official and now I'd launch a business even more kind of like okay essentially just like rigidly set in place and to have the grace period essentially to enable that to happen and still be profitable and still be able to you know pay people make moves all of that I think that was one of my biggest advantages I think to to be able to give be given the essentially the opportunity to learn as I go along was huge and like the most valuable thing I've had so that's kind of like how they started and we're about to embark on a really really extensive scaling journey so have you guys been able to raise funding for Tala or is that part of the plan essentially both businesses are still entirely self-funded and I think people often think that self-funded them leaves us from my bank account that doesn't as in it's it's a number of different ways it can be it can be from someone's like it could be if I put in like previous like invested money that I've got so for example like Kylie Cosmetics she invested 250 grand of her modeling funds in to start it Whereas ours essentially was what you would see as kind of bootstrapping. So kind of like reinvesting previous profits or pairing with manufacturing partners and essentially doing a revenue or profit split with them, but not giving that away as equity. So I was quite clear about being smart about that. And that's something that I wanted in terms of building yourself actual and like building the company in the way you want to. You've got to be really clear on those things from the off. But it's definitely not out of the question. I'd say for Shreddy, we're definitely like we're Shreddy is 
hugely profitable kind of to a ridiculous degree so as in it's insane so it shouldn't be that profitable in my in my opinion that's lost potential because we should have been spending like as in we should spend those you know that profit margin then better on other things that we should be doing to increase exposure all of these various different things also another story for another time but with Tala it's more likely that we'll look for investment first of all because investors want to be investing in sustainability so we can often get uh, like so I'm sure that you know we could make some amazing moves with people who really want to do good things and also because clothing's like a really hard business and it's nowhere near as profitable as digital which Shreddy is hugely made up of. So you wouldn't not look at getting funding but so far you've bootstrapped all the way to where you've got to now. Yeah. So it's either been a reinvestment or it's been partnering with people to essentially be like, okay, you get the manufacturing. Once we get this back, we'll do like, we'll split this or whatever. Okay. Love that. So what's one of the biggest mistakes you've made in the beginning of your businesses? And what has that taught you the most? Off the top of my head, I'd say I always should have hired faster. So I hired my first few staff probably faster than I ever would have just because I was at uni and I was kind of like, I need this. I need the extra help. I'd rather have more outgoings and actually be able to make sure that, you know, this is all working and not lose my place at uni. But then after that point, I didn't understand the way that organizational structure and infrastructure is built within a business enough. And over the past year, basically, I've spent a lot of time reading, studying, talking to people and and essentially just working that out, learning And now I know essentially there are so many people who I look at businesses that are significantly smaller than us. And I'm like, right, (laughs) I see why you've got that person. And now it's meant that we're at a stage where we're kind of like in some areas we're hiring kind of like a person a week and it's getting pretty insane. But essentially I should have hired faster and I should have hired. I, I feel like that's one of the most important things is that people think that it's always better to spread themselves and actually try and get things done because then they don't need to pay for the people. But the majority of early hires I found in my experience pay for themselves in the value they add. People always say hire better people than you at their prospective subjects. And then if you have like someone like finance, marketing, like all of these things, and they're all better than you at that thing, then like it's the same way as being like, you know, 100% of like 2 million is 2 million. Whereas like, you know, if you're like talking 20% of like 100 million, like it's going to be completely different. And so like actually looking at what your perspective is based on your kind of ego and your like legitimacy within the business, and then looking at what the business actually needs, I find often gives very different answers. And for me, one of the big things there was like, I didn't feel legitimate if I wasn't doing everything. And then I essentially, it was only when I realized that I couldn't do everything but then I'd still be really stingy. And now I'm like, hire this person. You know what? We'll take two of those. Like, as in like <laughs> uh, And that's honestly how I'm like now. And we need to be like that. And we could have grown a lot faster if we weren't like that. So I'm all about now I'm looking at everywhere. You know, we've done amazingly. But now I'm like, we lost potential here. We lost potential here. Like we could have done this. We could have done this. We needed to be more proactive. And now I'm like, I love this. And this is the principle of you can't be great on your own. No one is great on their own. It's not possible to just do stuff by yourself. And no one's saying that, you know, people can straight off the bat, like hire a CTO who's worked at a startup or something like that. Like you can't do that straight off the bat. But finding people who can do things better than you can do it is essential for any kind of growth or any kind of development. Even myself, like I hired actually someone who, you know, previously worked at a startup and, you know, got it sold for 25 million. So I'm like, okay, whatever she did, like, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to hire you. 
come in, let's let's work together, let's do this, let's build. But even if you're not looking at that kind of scale, I think learning that you just don't know everything and there's people who know it better than you is like the way to then really scale anything that you want to do. I think my problem was kind of the opposite in that I had, you know, the kind of self-doubt and imposter syndrome around something. So you kind of think, well, if I'm hiring people better than me and they're working for me and they're adding that value, then I was like, but it's not my company. And it's like, no, that that person has the freedom to do whatever they want outside. They can also go and set up their company. If you're taking on the risk of starting a company and building the brand to be what it is, then if you're hiring better people, that doesn't remove your legitimacy because you're not doing it. And I think that social media definitely drove into that a lot because I'd get like, you know, when I'd be growing and people would be like, oh, I didn't realize you didn't post on the Tyler Instagram. And I'd be like, oh God, have you ever seen like a big business where like Jeff Bezos is being like, post? Yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Rather than being kind of ego and thinking I'm the best was being like, I can't take credit for better people. And it's like, no, you can take credit for being smart enough to hire better people than you and them taking the business in your direction and your strategy. Exactly. And you are kind of the head, you're leading it, but you need people to help you steer and get to what you want to do. 100%. So let's talk a little bit about imposter syndrome, because I feel like there's so many of us who feel like we're not good enough, we shouldn't be in the position that we're in, um, and that we shouldn't talk about it. We shouldn't talk about our numbers confidently. Can we get into this? Because this is what, you know, I've dealt with this as well. And I just want to hear your perspective of it particularly as you know you're you started out on social media and you've built something so big like you feel like an imposter sometimes or how have you combated that so I feel like I've definitely combated that over the past year by just learning like just getting better at things and just being like oh actually no like I can sit down with people now and I know what I'm talking about like I you know I feel very confident in that but even before that point I think because although it was like a year and a half between when I started something and actually started making kind of money like proper money off it I actually think that everything will always feel like an overnight success and therefore you will always feel like you don't deserve it unless it's like a kind of really long slog and we're programmed to think that you know unless we kind of like do make everything and like physically like sew our own clothes and like do this like all of that until we get to that point where it's done well that's the only point that we deserve it and it's like no if you do something quicker and but because it's smarter or because you took advantage of a gap in the market or whatever, that doesn't make it less legitimate. It just means you were like also smart about it. And like, I think a lot of that has been me learning about that and just kind of being like, either there are kind of two ways I see it. First of all, like everyone's job sometimes looks easier than it is and sometimes looks harder than it is. So why do we only pay attention to when ours is easier than it looks? And therefore we get kind of luck or we're in the right place at the right time, or we met someone that we then ended up partnering with or whatever it might be. That happens to everyone. So why do we only kind of like interpolate it to ourselves and say like, well, only I'm the only person who's benefited from that. So like, I'm the only, like, I really don't deserve all this success, you know, like whatever. And I think that that's kind of one side of things is that I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I've, I've been hugely successful. And a lot of that has been right place, right time, gap in market, like doing things smart, doing things quickly, like meeting the right people. None of it I've cheated. I think acknowledging that has been very like, okay, being lucky and being smart is very different from kind of like playing people and being a fraud. And then the other side that I do think often, if I can't get rid of it, it's like, well, I am in that point of success. So I might as well enjoy it. I can sit here and be like miserable and be like, oh, I don't deserve it. Or I can be like, 
great like might as well enjoy it and I think that often the way I kind of assert myself away from my imposter syndrome is when people actively like say it might be like a comment or whatever and people are like oh you know like you didn't do this or you didn't do this and like I know how much I'm able to back myself and how much I'm able to kind of like you know stand up for myself and be like no I actually did do this or this is how I did that or whatever and then I'm like why do I not say that to myself when I'm giving myself the same talk if you can back yourself to other people then back yourself to yourself and then it's kind of been like either that or I'm just going to act like a kind of like big fraudster and I'm like so what like fuck it (laughs) what are you going to do about it I've got like and like and so it's kind of like you can't win either way so just enjoy it and I think with imposter syndrome I I don't know if it's a bit of human nature that people always have this voice in their head that tells them you're not doing well you're not worth it blah 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 and actually what a lot of people need to do are develop habits of mantras or conversations that they need to have to themselves to tell themselves like what to say when they hear that voice that's counterproductive because telling yourself you're not good enough isn't going to get you anywhere like it's not going to get you anywhere so you have to kind of develop a new skill to be like no I deserve to be here and even if it doesn't I'll put in the work to get to where I need to be too so I think most people need to think about what things are said to them, especially if they come out from external sources. Because I feel like you make reference to what people have said to you and then then you internalise that, particularly on social media. Absolutely. And you don't also, you don't deserve to do that. I think it is just important to remember that like everyone has different experiences. No one lives their life in parallel. And the way that some people's things will have gone well and have gone badly for you or whatever it might be, it just like, that's the way kind of like it's happened. And for you, like, you can sit and complain about it or be like, oh, this is shit. Or you can just be like, right, okay, I feel like a bit of a fraud today because like, <laughs> I actually had no idea what that person was talking about. It's okay to have a fraud day. <laughs> so this is a random question and maybe this is like the reality TV lover in me coming out. But how did you get Jordan Woods to work with you? So I saw that campaign. It looked absolutely amazing. How did like, you know, UK gal meet LA? my licensing partner for the company that I did that um so with BND at the time we essentially did this collab and they were essentially working with her on something else and then she basically had expressed interest in wanting to build longevity and kind of like you know equity for herself and make things you know make something really solid and they had basically said about my story and like what I'd done and what I do and all of that and she so I am told (laughs) this may be wrong um but she essentially was like great that's amazing like I would really like to do that I would like to learn more and essentially I kind of just got a call saying hey (laughs) (laughs) like we'd love to you know work with you and talk to you about like what you what you've done how you did it like all of these things and so yeah and then we were I was kind of like well (laughs) come on board like let's do a collection Yeah. yeah like let's do a collection with you as well Like, and then you build for you and we'll build for us too. I love that. I love that. So do you work with social media influencers and do you find it weird working with social media influencers and kind of being a social media influencer? Yeah, so I don't really do brand deals anymore. So um, for me, the way I am kind of feel like I'm no longer on that side, um, I like sometimes do, for example, like I've got a really exciting one coming up with like a bank about investment. And it's like, to me, that's great. Like that's the type of thing that it's less like, it, it's more in line with what I want to be doing. And so it does feel weird to be on the other side. And I guess that it's a, it's part of our um, strategy at 
Shreddy, um, it's influence marketing, and it's going to be part of our strategy at Tala. Essentially, we just haven't had the margins yet, and it hasn't been the route we've gone down. And we've been lucky enough to like still get the benefits without that type of marketing. But it is it is weird. It's weird that being on like the other side and knowing like you know how to I know how I liked creating content and then I think instantly when I was looking at the budget that we had for it I was like we've got to get them to do this 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 and this and then it was only kind of a week ago that I was like you know what why has this changed when I'm on the other side I knew I used to get so angry at brands that would be like oh no you have to do things like this and I was like but I know my audience and I know they're gonna want to do best and I know this will sell better please trust me and I was like why has my opinion changed when I jumped to the other side and it's just because you want to get your money's worth and you're you know how much you're spending on things like this these things are like really expensive and now it made me kind of like last week I had a talk with the team I was like we're switching up our strategy we're essentially taking influencers needs and we're getting them to either do creatives or we'll provide them with a brief and then we'll say like we want you to go on like an honest thing this is your minimum deliverables but do what like is like you know sign like we'll sign you up to shreddy you do it we're gonna leave you to it and just like share with your audience things like that I think so I was so so weirded out by the fact that I was like oh god I've actually been like the exact type of brand that I'm turning to an agency (laughs) an old school agency (laughs) I know that doesn't understand those things and I was like that's my one also a huge benefit of mine is that I do understand that from both sides and that's always been my kind of like specialty is that like you know I've, I've got that area down um, but that that was very uh, definitely been interesting for me. So where do you think the social media space and influencer space is going to be say you know in a year from now? I think it's very saturated and I think there's definitely space for everyone but I think also what it does is it kind of like inflates Um, And it creates this kind of like bubble, I think. And I think in the same way, it's sort of because there are so many people out there, like you can find like doubles of like whatever, like the whole time when we're looking for influencers to do things, you know, there are pages of people who will come up with very, very similar stats. And I think that the only the differentiating factor will be people who can get their personality across. And otherwise, for example, we don't, we no longer really work with influencers who can't convince us of that. Because for us, that's, it's just, you know, we might as well do paid spend, like we might as well do that on ads. Um, And it completely depends on like what type of campaign we're doing, what, what the kind of like, key performance indicators that we want to come out of it. So whether we want exposure, followers, like, you know, like sales, whatever it might be. But mainly for us, we kind of looked at it and been like, oh, there are literally so I like so many people with a lot of followers now. The people who will do well are going to be the people who can establish their own personal brand. It's about that honesty and that being that authenticity. And I know people have always said that, but I don't think that's actually been held true to in the influencer world. And I think that that is what's going to change. I love it. I, like, I feel like this even personally, like I used to kind of, I don't know what the word is, but I would dim myself down because I'm actually a really opinionated person. And I and I sometimes like I have to like hold back, like Patricia, don't do it. Remain professional, you know, be Instagram, just take the picture, just don't do the video, just be quiet. But I recognize how much people really connect when you just genuinely share from a place of depth. And I think it's so important for anyone who's thinking about like being an influencer or even starting a brand, like it has to be a hundred percent a person sharing who they are and what they're genuinely about, which is even why like the break had to be, like I had to do, I had such an itching feeling that I had to do this because it was 
I don't know, I say like my calling. I just had to have these conversations because it's so important to me personally. So, hey. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've said this to you before. You've done it so well. Like you've honestly, like I think it's so important what you've done. Um, and I'm such a big fan. I literally, I, I don't watch YouTube and I actually watch the break videos. So it's random, but it had to be done. And I think as well, there's a level of, you know, well, you're a beauty guru. Oh, you, well, you do fashion videos. Why the hell are you talking about this subject matter? And this is where something I might feel imposter syndrome about, but I don't care. I just do shit anyway, because I feel like doing it. But that's like being like, why do you wear clothes? Because you're a finance person. Like, as in, like, you're still gonna, you're still gonna potentially wear makeup or use skincare or like wear clothes, no matter what you do. So like, and like, there are, there are always going to be angles that you can take. Like I'm, my specialist subject is music. Like, <laughs> very true. Very true. It's all about, you know, finding what works for you and actually what you enjoy. Okay, so we're going to kind of try and close out. We have a section here called Drop and Give Me 20. So quick fire answers. Tell me what you think or which one is like your answer. Oxford or London? London. Making it or making it perfect? Making it. Working hard or working smart? Working smart. Manny or Peddy? Uh, Manny. The last time you cried was? Tuesday. <laughs> I'm a stress crier. The first thing you do when you wake up is? Probably pee. How do you approach doing hard things? Planning, breaking it down. What motivates you to work even when you don't want to? The responsibility of having so many people's employees and like their livelihoods in my hand. Self-care to you means? Not always relaxing. Sometimes it is you are caring for yourself better when you're being productive. Like if you need to get that project done and the reason you're feeling shit is because you actually have another half finished project, get that done. That is self-care. A face mask at that point is not (laughs) self-care. It's not going to help you. It's not going to write the essay. It's not going to build the business. Holy Grail skincare product? There's this thing called like Breeze Balm that's just like a a, a lip balm that I now have like 20 of that I just put everywhere because I'm like, I need this. Setting boundaries for you means? My own boundaries between work and life and or work and not work. I feel like you're really good with that and you really stick to that. I, I am now. like, And that's something that I've made a commitment to. If you could relive a moment from your life, what would that be? Probably my 22nd birthday party. I had all my friends to a big castle. (laughs) I saw those pictures. They looked amazing. Did I? Yeah, they looked amazing. Yeah, I just made like a PR weekend for my friends. Everyone had like makeup on their bed when they arrived. Like everything was, was, it was unreal. It was amazing. Most expensive thing you own? My house. (laughs) And the last time you felt nervous? Yesterday when having a hard conversation with a friend. I love that. We're going to close up now and we're going to do a couple of takeaways. Um, I would love to hear maybe something that you think that the audience should learn from maybe you or your experience or something you just want to share with the people who might be listening. My thing is that even if you don't believe in yourself, because often I don't, just make the steps to make something happen. Like believing in yourself is not going to change like the actual things that you need to do to get yourself somewhere. So just do it like systematically and logically. And then it will either happen or it won't. Like I think this whole kind of believe in yourself always isn't always realistic. And so sometimes the best thing to do is just make it happen. And then you can believe in yourself later. Like Love that. Like Nike says, just do it basically. So obviously shop taller instead. Oh yeah, oops. Shop taller instead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and we're not done yet. 
If you like what you've heard and want to hear more, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on Amazon, or whatever you're listening on. If you like the Court of Guard podcast, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Please share the podcast on your social media or in your WhatsApp groups and let me know your thoughts on what we've discussed using the hashtag Court of Guard pod. Follow me and The Break on Instagram and YouTube and you can just Google me. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people find us. And I'd love to know what future guests you'd like me to interview and what topics you'd like us to discuss. So keep all your suggestions coming. I read all your comments and I really appreciate your feedback and support. So until next time. Court of Guard presented by The Break Platform is an independent podcast created and hosted by Patricia Bright. The producer and executive producer is Clarissa Pappy.